0: Good morning. good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. It is good to, to gather um, as God's people to sing of his mercy. This morning as we, uh, as we continue, in fact, as we finish our series called DNA, uh, we are walking through what the core values of our church are um, that our elders have, have identified, and, and again, these are not... Values we've been saying each week that we in which we feel like as a church where we have arrived. Uh, these are simply areas uh, of our identity that, that that we've prayed about and we believe that they shape the way that we approach life and ministry. Um, and and so if you're new today, most weeks we're we're walking through a particular text or book of the Bible. Uh, so this is a little unique, but we pray that these have been helpful. Um, well, today today is a, we discuss our final value. A family of exiles, family of exiles and i 'm interested to hear like i 've talked to a couple of you but just in any of the funny guesses you had as you saw the initials of these values originally. Um, we can talk about that later, but uh, uh, but uh, i 've enjoyed these uh, these contrasting phrases and and we 've talked about contrast a little bit, but contrasts are interesting in that. Uh, sometimes a contrast of, of items is just two different things making, making each one better. Uh, peanut butter and jelly. But you put them together and they're peanut butter and jelly. They're not, they don't stop to be peanut butter or jelly, but together they make something great. Uh, sometimes the combination of two things or the contrast of two things makes something totally different. Diet Coke, and Mentos, right? Something totally different is happening there. You're not enjoying either one quite the way that you were. Um, but I, I hope that you'll see this morning as we move along together uh, in this this uh, family of exiles topic, that we'll, we'll see how these ideas relate to one another. Uh, there are a, a few... There are very few genres in literature or in movies that are quite as compelling as, as the marooned traveler genre. If you're you're probably familiar with this, it can be dramatic, like the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks, where he becomes friends with the volleyball. Um, it was actually dramatic. It can be like ET, who's 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 here. Uh, it can be like Gilligan's Island or, or Milo and Otis, good classic, uh, somewhat funny shows. Uh, it can be a great two-hour mystery like Interstellar, one of my per- personal favorites, or it can be a it can you can drag it out for seven seasons like Lost, um, and it didn't need to happen. Um, but uh, I, lo- I loved it for a little while. But Lost is an interesting one uh, because what we, what we saw in Lost, if you, if you didn't watch, it, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to spoil anything, you don't need to go watch it anyway, but in Lost we saw a, a variety of, of reactions to being stuck somewhere, a, vari- a variety of reactions to, to, to wanting to go back home. Uh, there were those who, they didn't want to go back home. They, they liked where they were. The island was actually better for them than, than it had been back home. Uh, th- th- there were people who, they gave up their humanity to just try to win and defeat others and hopefully get off the island. And then there were others who became servants of the group. Uh, we, we, we love seeing that internal struggle uh, of, being, of being forced to live in a place that isn't home trying to survive, searching for others, adjusting to the environment, trying not to get eaten, all while trying to find your way back home. And I think this resonates deeply because we all wanna feel at home. That's how God wired us. And you may say, oh yeah, that's not me. I'm not one of those people. I like to travel, I like to be on the road, I like to go. But some of you who say that you're travelers and you like to be on the go, if your pillow gets left at home, It's like, nah, might as well cancel it. I gotta go back home. I can't sleep without my pillow. Uh, We want the feeling of home. That's what we long for. We long for that comfort. And today we're gonna consider what it it means to be a family of exiles. And I want us to, as we do that, I want us to see four realities. Number one, what we all want. Number two, uh, what we got. Number three, how this shapes us. And lastly, what awaits us. Let me let me pray for us this morning. I would ask you as we begin, would you just right where you are? Will you pray that the Lord would would take away dis- anything that's distracting you, that you might have a heart that would hear um, this morning as we go to God's Word? Would you pray for your own uh, for your own listening? And how would you take just a minute and, and pray for me, uh, pray that the word of God would, would go forth powerfully, that any, any cloudiness in my delivery would be uh, replaced by the clarity of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we do come to you this morning and we cry out just as we sang, oh, what a savior. We praise you that your arms and the gospel, your arms are open wide to us. And so we come to you today and we ask that you would speak to us, uh, speak to our lives. Uh, and, and Father, would your, would your truth, uh, would your truth delve deeply uh, into the core of who we are, that we would change um, by the power of your spirit for your glory. God, would we see your goodness and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Number one, what we all want. Well, this desire for home is the human condition. Uh, It it was wired in us from the beginning and I I think we see it all throughout scripture. And so I I just want us to look at this, this need for home. Let's start in the garden with Adam and Eve. They were placed by God in the home of all homes. Their work was both fulfilling and not painful, if you can believe it. They had dominion over animals, unbroken marital fellowship, no shame, an unhindered access to the Father. It was wonderful. But like us, they were easily swayed to believe they needed something more. What will really make me feel at home in this world is a little taste of the knowledge of good and evil. God's holding out. We should know more. He knows more. And we know the story all too well. They disobeyed the father and in a move that they thought would bring life. Instead, what they lost was everything. They fell from their perfect existence, removed from their perfect home, and now, away from their home, their very bodies were going to break down. The passage of years was no longer going to bring joy. It was going to bring pain. And, and I, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever tried to just put yourself in the shoes of Adam and Eve. Well, the, the, the whatever, I don't, I don't think it was shoes. Uh, <laughs> as they stepped out of the garden into the thorny wilderness. Just imagine that first night the fear that had never been there. Imagine those first years with the taste of Eden still on their tongue. You think you've got nostalgia for something you've left behind. Can you imagine what they felt? They had it worse. They remembered sinlessness. They remembered walks with the father. And now here they are out in the wilderness and in the wilderness, that's where they bring others in. They bring children into the world. And every human being since has shared both in Adam's sin nature and in Adam's homesickness. That that this world doesn't really satisfy. So so what happens next? Adam and Eve's son Cain, right? When, When God doesn't receive his offering, he becomes jealous of his brother and he kills Abel. And what was Cain's sentence? As the third human on the face of the earth, he was sentenced to a life of wandering, even further away from the community, destined as a wanderer. God's people were lost. And now they're building cities and families, they're homesick in the the fallen world. And, and, and so God, not too long later, has to wipe the earth clean with a flood. Humanity has a, a fresh start with Noah and his family. And only two chapters after the flood in Genesis, we read the words of mankind in Genesis 11. This is what humanity is saying. Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth. They don't wanna be scattered again. They wanna to be together. How else will they feel at home? How will we find significance on the earth? So they build a city. They build a tower. But the Lord knows this is an empty well. This will not make them feel home. So he scatters them again. And this happens again and again. God's people trying to find home, trying to find satisfaction and impermanence in the world. But each attempt is like, it's like grabbing a fistful of water. But God in his mercy changes things. Instead of a man searching for home with God, God invites a man in. With paradise, a memory that's fading away, God says to a 70-year-old idol-worshiping man named Abram, with no children, he says, follow me. Leave your home. Leave your relatives. Leave your father's house. Leave everything you've known as home and, and go to a place that I will tell you about. I'll make you a nation. I'm going to make you a family. I'm going to make something permanent with you. What will it be like? You'll be my people and I will be your God. It sounds a little bit like the garden, doesn't it? In fact, the Lord says, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the world through you. Such a promise. So Abraham goes. But what happens when he gets there? When he gets to the land of promise? People already live there. God promised me somebody else's house. But he trusts the Lord. He waits. And the promises begin to come true. God brings the old man, Abram, and his wife, Sarah. He brings them a son, Isaac, and he begins to see the reality of this possible nation that God would build. But what about the land? What about a home? And here's what Hebrews 11 tells us about the life of Abraham. It says in verse 9 By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co heirs of the same promise. They were all co heirs of a promise, but they didn't get it, they lived in tents. You think you don't like tent camping. They lived in tents. And not just that, his son, his grandson, it was, the, it was the family life. Nomads on the earth, still no home. Visitors in a land that was supposed to be theirs. Next, to protect them from famine, God takes them to Egypt. Maybe Egypt will be home. So they grow in great number there, but what do they become? Slaves. Slaves. Generations pass and they are now in slavery. These people who can trace themselves back to the Garden of Eden, who were looking for a better land that God had promised, now they're slaves. This is starting to feel like a myth, like there's nothing that's not real out there. But God hasn't forgotten them. He sends Moses to rescue them. He takes them out of Egypt, gives them his law and says, I still have a place for you. I'm gonna take you there. And, and I wish that when we read about it, it was just like a straight line. But if you've been reading our, our Bible reading plan through this, this year, uh, you have read uh, through Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. You're reading and you're going, man, these are, the, these are the most crooked lines there could be to a place. It's a slow motion wandering of God's people. And, and, and generation after generation dies off. Until finally, God's people, under the leadership of Joshua, it finally happens. They enter in. But home, when they got there, what was it like? It was chaotic. If you've ever read the book of Judges, it was terrible. Sin was rampant. It wasn't the home that they felt they were promised. So they asked God, we need a king. We need a king to lead us. And slowly through the reign of King David and his son Solomon, Jerusalem is established. Their enemies are conquered. The temple is built. God's presence is with his people, and it's in God's city. The dream has been realized. Finally, permanence, peace. Could it be true? But like a convenience store that claims to have the world's best cheeseburger. It just doesn't live up to the hype, right? And, and, and even what it was, they couldn't maintain it. Why? Because of sin. Their best king, David, the man after God's own heart, he sins dreadfully, taking another man's wife, having her husband killed. Their, wor- their, their, their wisest king, Solomon, he disobeys God. He takes foreign wives and multiplies his military forces. And the dream of the kingdom slowly splinters and evaporates with each king, things seemingly getting worse. The nation is divided in two. Soon the Assyrians take the Northern Kingdom and the Babylonians come in shortly after that and take the, the Southern Kingdom into captivity. God's people are once again taken away, exiled from their home, cut off from the worship of God and a capital of Jerusalem is demolished. The walls are brought to the ground, even the temple destroyed. Was that it, Lord? Was this the promise? Only a few generations in the land, that's all we got. And now we're captives again. And so along come the prophets who had been warning them of the coming judgment. And now after they're captured, the prophets are calling them, repent, repent. And if you turn back to the Lord, he will take you back, he will bring you back home. Some of the prophets even wrote of such a grand return, a kingdom even better than the first, and of a great Messiah king who would restore their former glory. And sure enough, after 70-ish years in exile, slowly in waves, the people return home. But what an incredibly sad thing, as they arrive to their home, as they begin to rebuild with Ezra and Nehemiah, it isn't better than the first time. It's worse. It's not what they hoped for at all. We read in Ezra 3 that as the foundation of the new temple is laid, the young Israelites who were born out in captivity, they, they rejoice. But the older Israelites weep because they know it was better before. They remember how majestic it was. This can't be the grand return that the prophets spoke about. Ezekiel says that the whole world would wanna come here, that it would feel like the Garden of Eden. It would be the home that they had lost. So was so this just a cruel trick? And as the curtain closes on the Old Testament, what do we have? God's people are back home but it seems to be a cheap imitation of home. Gone is the glory of Israel. Faith is waning. There is no king, but one of the final Old Testament prophets, Zechariah, gives them some hope. Even after their home, this is what he says. He says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's saying it's not over. There's still a rescue coming. But what kind of rescue will it be? Will it be like of Moses? Just a few chapters later, Zechariah says in chapter 12, uh, it, it says that he will, the Lord says, I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David And they will look at me whom they pierced. So, this is something different. This is a different sort of rescue he's pointing to. And then in chapter 14, Zechariah just goes off the chart. He says, Look, a day belonging to the Lord is coming. On that day, uh, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in half, uh, forming a huge valley. So, half the mountain will move to the north and half to the south. So, there's mountains moving now. In verse seven, it says, it will be a unique day only known to the Lord without day or night, but there will be light, as, uh, there, there will be light at evening. On that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it towards the Eastern Sea and other, the other half towards the Western Sea in summer and winter alike. On that day, the Lord will become king over the whole earth. The Lord alone and his name alone. Which leads us to number two, what we got Enter Jesus, the perfect son of God. He comes on the scene and of course they miss him, kind of. Since Zechariah and Malachi, there had been silence. No prophets, no hope, no word of what would happen. And that they need a conquering king more than ever. Sure, they're back living at home, but now home is controlled by Rome. They're captives in their own land. The coming of Messiah is gonna need to clean house. And as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that donkey, there's hope for just a minute as they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here he is. But he wasn't. He wasn't the one that they looked for. He wasn't the conqueror. This was the servant that Isaiah describes: stricken, smitten, re- rejected, despised by men like a lamb being led to the slaughter. You see, the people didn't need the king they thought they needed. They didn't need a king to vanquish their foes. They tried that already. No, Jesus Christ, the servant king, came not to conquer nations, but to conquer sin. The only way God's people would ever truly be home is if their sin was vanquished. They didn't need the kingdom rebuilt. They needed their hearts reborn. They didn't need the new temple walls raised. They needed a savior raised from the dead. And Jesus said, I am the king that you need. But in John 18, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So, so if he wasn't going to give them this physical place of refuge, what did he give them? He gave them, John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. When Jesus prayed, he asked the Father, May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. I have given them the, the glory that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. And one of the, the greatest Jesus jukes of all time, I don't know if that's a familiar term, uh, it, it, the, the Jesus did something. He, he zigged when they thought he should zag. And, and one of the greatest change of directions of all time, they so badly wanted a kingdom, but instead they got forgiveness. And instead, they got a family. They thought they needed a kingdom with a new temple made of stones. But instead, he tells Peter, upon this rock, this stone, I will build my church. I will build my people. Not a temple, but a people. And then Peter turns around and he uses the same language when he writes to the churches, when he writes to Christians, when he writes to us. He says in 1 Peter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 9, and he's using words that, he, that had been used to describe the nation of Israel. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Friends, we are just like the people of old, aren't we? And just like them, this world, it will never truly fulfill our expectations. No pleasure will truly last. The joys of this earth will wane No experience will ever, forever live up to the hype. Why? Because this world wasn't intended to be home. It was never supposed to satisfy. Like our mothers and fathers before us, we too are exiles here. Jesus is still the king. Our ultimate home is still with him. It's still coming. He said, I'll come again. But as we wait, look at what we get. We get this home. These people, this family, the saints of Jesus Christ, those who believe in Him, they are your brothers and your sisters, your spiritual mothers and fathers, as Ephesians said, that you have been brought into the household of God. That's why every time we gather, every time you're with God's people, it's like a family reunion. And yes, we're still strangers and aliens on the earth until he comes again, but we have a home in the family of God. We are a family of exiles. What a beautiful contrast. We are a family. The church is is our home and we are exiles. Our home, our true home is still coming. Do you feel those two realities? Do you feel that connected to other Christians Ephesians 4 says, we're so close that we're like a body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. We're that close to one another. First Corinthians 12, 26 says, we're so connected that when one suffers, we all suffer. And do you feel that sense of alienation in the earth? That we are exiles, that this world is not your home. Do you believe like Paul said in Philippians three, that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for a savior there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or like Peter in first Peter two 11, where he says, you're strangers, you're exiles here. Or even like David, when he cried out in Psalm 39, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all of my fathers. Elizabeth Elliot said this way. She said, heaven is not here it's there. If we were given all we wanted here, our hearts would settle for this world rather than the next. God is forever luring us up and away from this one, wooing us to himself and his still invisible kingdom where we will certainly find what we, are keenly, what we keenly long for. So number three, how does this shape us? How does it shape us? Well, if that's who we are, Redeemer, we are a family of exiles. So, so, so why, why is that one of our values? How does it shape the kind of church that we want to be? I think some of the ways that we can understand why this is important is by seeing what it looks like when they're absent, when these, when these are absent. What are the counterfeit versions of this, uh, the lies that we should avoid? So I'm gonna give us two lies about each, each one. First, first, I'm gonna give you two lies about our identity as family. Lie number one, says that church is a product to be consumed instead of a people to be joined to. This is so easy to resort to in 2022. I mean, we, like, we have a lot of choices in life. I choose where I get food. I choose where I gain education for my kids. I choose what shows I watch, what books I read. I choose pretty much everything about my life is in the purview of my choosing. Why should church be any different? So I'll shop for the best options I can find, the best classes, the best music, the best kids' programs, and I'll consume those goods. But what a radically individual approach to church. When church becomes an appointment on a calendar, a place where I can stop in when I need a little self-improvement, then we've missed the gospel and we've missed God's vision for his church. So let's, let's reject that. Let's reject that church is an individual sport. Charles Spurgeon described this sort of Christianity as a brick laying around by itself saying, I'm a house. Truth is, no, you're not. It's only as we give ourselves to each other in fellowship with each other that we grow into, into the image of Jesus. He is building us together. Ephesians 4.22, in him, you are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. This, This means the church is a place where you give as much as you receive. You don't say, I'm going to my life group so that I can gain. Instead, I'm committed to these people because of what we each give to each other. I don't come to each gathering going, man, I'm gonna gain. Yes, I wanna gain. I wanna feast on the Lord, but I also want to give. How can I serve? Lie number two, church is a place to find more people like me. I think it's a common lie that the church should be this uniform place. That what I really need is some people like me More people in my socioeconomic strata, from my ethnic background, in my stage of life, people that match all of my preferences and life patterns. But Redeemer, isn't it amazing how different all of us are? I look around a lot on Sundays and just go, we would never all know each other. How is it, Lord, that we're one family? It's only a work of his spirit. This definitely means, as Paul said, that we have different gifts and different roles. Some are thumbs, others are eyes, some are feet, some are mouths. But more importantly, this means that your church family is is not going to be all the people that you would pick. Which, take heart. If if, if you don't like the ones you got around you, that's how it's supposed to be. It's a place where where John Perkle becomes friends with Rod Burkhoff. It's a place where a soft-spoken grandmother invites a tattooed person from Gen Z over for dinner. To have real fellowship, if we're going to have it, we have to put to death our wish dream, as Bonhoeffer called it. What we wish our community was like. Listen, God will use the most frustrating, unlikely Christians to help you grow. He knows what we need. This is the way Bonhoeffer said it in his little book, Life Together which I highly recommend. He says, "'Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, "'is not the sinning brother still a brother, "'with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? "'Will not his sin be a constant occasion "'for me to give thanks that both of us "'may live in the forgiving love of God and Jesus Christ? "'Thus the very hour of disillusionment with my brother "'becomes incomparably beneficial.' because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed, which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. When the morning mists of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. Man, what a beautiful vision of the church. I wanna give us a few pastoral hopes in this area. I'm just gonna read these. Number one, may we learn to see one another like family, not being okay when we don't see each other for a long time. Number two, may conversations about the greatness of Jesus be common and not superficial. Number three, may grudges and assumptions be confronted and rooted out quickly. And number four, may forgiveness and confession be normal. May grace be the air we breathe. Now I wanna share a couple lies about our identity as exiles. Lie number one, our primary identity is ethnic or national. One of the ways we lose sight of of our identity as exiles is a heavy focus on earthly forms of identity. I'm in such and such family. I'm a Baptist, I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Texan, I'm an American. Look, I, I love our country, I love our state, I'm so grateful to live here. Praise God for our freedoms. But our danger would be in making that our first identity. We are kingdom people first. Citizens of heaven, Paul says. This means that, that you and I have genuinely more in common with a 19-year-old Arab-speaking Iranian Christian refugee than with a non-Christian neighbor who loves the fajitas that you make and the Astros as much as you do. We get that so clearly when we get out, out, out from home, don't we? When we go overseas. When Amy and I were in Thailand a number of years ago, we ran into an American. It was great. It was so exciting. It was like, hey, where do you live? What are you doing here? Are you liking the food? Uh, we, we have a means of connecting. Like we can, hey, you, I can speak the language with you. This is great. But when we went into a rice farming village and we met some old rural Thai Christians, oh, how our hearts leaped. We needed a translator. We couldn't even communicate with each other. They, they, had, they gave, were giving us food that I don't even think we should have eaten. Uh, I didn't understand their life or what they were about. I didn't, I didn't get their culture, but they were our brothers and our sisters. What a primary place of identity. That is who we are. And this is how it is with the church of Jesus. We're full of different cultures, different denominational backgrounds, different global and political perspectives. But you know what supersedes all that? We need the same grace from Jesus. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Lie number two, Christians should only engage spiritual need. I've heard this one a lot lately. It's kind of the yes, be good citizens and pray for those in authority and then just preach the gospel. And that, that sounds, it sounds really good. It sounds really pure. But when Jesus changes us, he also changes our heart for people. And he's always commanded his people, act justly, love kindness, walk humbly with our God. But I love in Jeremiah 29, the Lord writes this letter. It's like a letter in the middle of the book that Jeremiah writes to the exiles at Babylon and and through it, the Lord is telling them how to act, how to behave as exiles. This is what he said. This is what we read at the beginning. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice just, I mean, I just have to pause. Notice who sent them into exile, the Lord. Here's what he tells them. Verse five, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Don't decrease. He's saying, don't shrink away, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God is saying, don't eject from the people living around you. Don't isolate, don't retreat into your huddle. Build your houses among their houses. Grow food, build your family up, and seek the good of the people of Babylon. Isn't that fascinating? And then all these years later, Peter writes his letter to exiles as well. It's kind of a mirror of Jeremiah's letter. He writes to us, those who are now exiled on the earth, and this is what Peter says. He says, proclaim the praises. We just read this earlier. Proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There it is. Proclaim the praise. Preach the gospel. Proclaim the good news of what Jesus did for you. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 11 and 12. He says, says, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. This is how you live. And then he says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they'll observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. This is an echo echo of Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah said, seek the welfare of the city. And Peter says, conduct yourselves honorably. Do good works among the Gentiles. Church, we're called to love and to serve our neighbors. And this can be really hard. Caring for the poor, loving our enemies, sharing the gospel, making disciples, and doing good works of mercy in Tomball and around the area. This is the work of a citizen of heaven. Joni taught us said this, so when a Christian realizes his citizenship is in heaven, he begins acting as a responsible citizen of earth. May we be those who are seeking the good welfare of our city, ministering and doing good works amongst those who don't know Jesus. I wanna give just a few pastoral hopes on this front. Number one, may we be an unshakable people, unmoved by the constant churn of headlines, but instead anchored to the sureness of Jesus. Number two, may we be generous, willing to to devote time and resources, sacrificing both for one another and for the poor and hurting number three, may we remind one another regularly to flee those things which might displace our hope and our anticipation for the coming kingdom. C.S. Lewis said this about his longing for the kingdom as an exile. He said, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and help others do the same. Let's lead to number four, what awaits us? Redeemer Church, as a family of exiles, I pray that this will shape us. If if our primary objective is to make this world home, we will fail to do it and we will also fail to maintain the fire of our love for Jesus. But guess what? I want you just to think about the people in the room this morning. In give or take 80 years, all of us will be dead. Some sooner, some, some of you are young, some of you are in elementary school, maybe you got, maybe you got longer than that, But but In in not a very long period of time, we'll all be gone. Oh, that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, my prayer is that they would say of us what the author of Hebrews said of those who came before him. He wrote about Abraham and the patriarchs, but imagine, I just want you to imagine for a second that this might be said of us. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 13. These, imagine this is you, these all died in faith. Although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had opportunity to return, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. That's what we long for. We long for the better city. That's what exiles are waiting for, for that ultimate rescue when Jesus comes again. Church family, we are brothers, sisters. This is our taste of home on earth, but our true home, our true king is still coming. And our exile in Babylon will soon be over. And when he comes, that day will be glorious, which is why we say, come, Lord Jesus. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we praise you. We praise you for that vision of a better city. One where there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, pain will be no more that the previous things will have passed away, that there'll be a new heaven, a new earth, and the one who is enthroned will be Jesus. Father, we long for that day. We long for the day that all things will be made right. But Father, even now, would you sustain us? We thank you that you've given us your comforter to be with us, that you've empowered us by your spirit, and that you've let us be ambassadors of reconciliation in the world. Lord, would you help us to be faithful to the mission you've given us? Would you help us to be faithful to the family that we live in? And Lord, would the, the name of Jesus be made much of amongst this group of exiles waiting for, King, for our King Jesus? We love you. Would you lead us now as your children to worship and to remember the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus? We love you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.